Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. So, Hank, we're going to try something a little different today. You and I have come up with a phrase of the week. This might not last. This this bit might be stupid. <laughs> but we've come up with a phrase of the week. And whoever successfully works the phrase of the week into uh, our conversation without it being obvious that it's the phrase of the week wins the non-existent prize of the day. Right. So the idea is, no, like if the if people know that I've done it before the other person you wins. identify it, then then you win. But if no one realizes that it's happened, and I don't know how we're going right. to judge that, John, except well, by well, I think we're gonna know. I think we're going to know in our hearts. I <laughs> definitely think we're going to know in our hearts. Hello and welcome to Dear John and Hank. In, uh, it's called Dear Hank and John. A comedy podcast about death in which me and my brother Hank provide you with dubious advice, answer your questions, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. But first, how you doing, Hank? Oh my god, this is really distracting and kind of feels wrong and gross. I would say that it feels just right. It feels like the podcast is always going to feel after uh, we don't get to Mars in 2027. How are you? Uh, good, John. And I, uh, I just want to know, everyone to know, that this is happening one time and we have 10 more years of me doing it the normal way before or we more may or we may somehow not get a person to Mars. Yeah. Um, I, so Hank, I don't know about you, but I just experienced one of the great wonders of the heavens. It was pretty good. I also did. Yes. And what are you referring to? Because uh, I think you might be referring to the solar eclipse. I was correct. I am referring to how it feels when you look directly up into the sky and rain falls into your eye. <laughs> I looked directly up into the sky and a lot of photons from the sun fell directly into my eye um, because I am that guy who is like, but I, if you look at it for just a second, it's okay. Um, uh, well, I don't want to get into the, I, I mean, talk about dubious advice. Hank's dubious <laughs> advice, stare directly at the sun. If you look uh, for a little bit, it's fine. It's true. I mean, it's true. If you look for a little bit, it's fine. Um, and I, I, I'd also had eclipse glasses and I went to the office and we had donuts and everybody had a good time looking at the eclipse. And the thing that I was, I, I was most surprised by, I think this is the closest I've ever gotten to a full eclipse. I was about 90%. 
of the sun was occluded in Missoula, and uh, it got cold. Like people yeah. went inside to get their hoodies. Yeah. Well, we had ninety-seven like, percent like, here in Indianapolis. Oh wow! Wow. Um, but I would say also 85% cloud cover. The great thing, though, about <laughs> our eclipse is that I kind of enjoy a mostly cloudy eclipse uh, because it sort of came in and out of view. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the moment after we were able to enjoy 97% um, of the sun not being visible, it did begin to rain huge drops directly into my open eyes. <laughs> you got to have those glasses on, John. It's for protection. I know I made a horrible mistake. Um, Hank, can we answer some questions from our listeners? Well, John, since you started out the podcast, I, I guess it's on me to do the poem for the day. Oh, um, good. So I've got a, a, a poem, a short poem. This is actually an excerpt from a longer poem. Um, Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit lonely and you're never coming round. Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit tired of listening to the sound of my tears. Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit nervous that the best of all the years have gone by. Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit terrified, and then I see the look in your eyes. Turn around, bright eyes. But every now and then I fall apart. Turn around, bright eyes. Every now and then I fall apart. I mean, there has never been a better time to quote the lyrics to Total Eclipse of the Heart. Um, But also, I would like to remind you that you cannot again... This goes for everyone. <laughs> Quote the lyrics to Total Eclipse of the Heart until the next Total Eclipse. Uh, oh, my goodness. Graces so is the there, United States of is America. It, it's just Bonnie Tyler, it, it, like, like, b- b- what's it called? Bonnie, a blackout. So it's, yeah, so it's just like a Bonnie Tyler blackout for, it's uh, for the next 2,000 days. For the next 2,000 days. That's exactly right. Hank, we got to get to some questions from our listeners. This first one is about uh, the sky above us. It comes from Brianna, who writes, Dear John and Hank, how much of the sky can I see when I'm standing in a relatively flat part of the Earth? I realized the other day that my brain just assumed I had a 180-degree view, but that can't possibly be true. I went to art school and haven't done trigonometry (laughs) in eight years. Can you please help me figure this out so my brain doesn't explode? Sine, Uh, cosine, and tangents, Brianna. Oh, sine, cosine, and I like that because I thought it was going to say signed Brianna, but it said sine, cosine, and tangent. Okay, John, do you have a good answer for this one? Because I have an actual answer for it. you do have a good answer? I have an actual answer. I've, oh, I, I looked it up. My assumption has always been that um, you can see 180 degrees of the sky. Like, you can see half the Earth's sky. But I did realize while reading the question that this is not something I've thought very hard about. So give me the actual answer. Well, so the sitch is that the... So so we're going to assume that you're standing on an, uh, like a perfectly flat spot in the on the Earth's surface, which probably would be on a, a like, standing on a canoe in the middle of the ocean. So that's Or you s- could just go to Indiana. <laughs> or you could just go to Indiana um, where they're like just after the corn harvest. Um, and yeah, so what you're going to see is uh, what it's going to look like uh, 50% sky and earth if you look look around you. But because the earth curves away from you and the sky does not there is actually more sky than there is Earth, and by Earth Wait, I don't so you're mean seeing dirt. Most I mean of the planet. Sky? So you're seeing most. You're seeing like more than fifty percent of of your like if you did like a you know three hundred and sixty degree uh, picture with a three hundred sixty degree, degree camera, more than fifty percent of the picture would be sky. 
So does that mean, Hank, that when I look at the sky from Indiana, I am looking at literally most of the sky? You are looking at most of the sky. Yes. Wow. Uh, I mean, probably like if you're really on a flat spot. If you like the closer you get your head to the ground, the worse it is. So if you're like on the top of a building, you can definitely see mostly sky uh, or most of the sky and also mostly sky, both of those things. Um, if you're on a plane, you see like 53% of what you see is sky. Uh, and like 47% is is land or ground or earth wow. or whatever you'd call that. So but but if you're just standing, if you're like a 5 foot six person you probably see about like it's gonna be like 50.04 percent of what you see is sky but you will be and also but you will be seeing most i will you be seeing most of the sky i don't know if that's actually true i don't know that you, uh, you will know be what seeing Hank, most I'm, of the sky i think it's but you metaphorically will see, resonant so i'm just gonna sky. stop you right there and we are you can see most of the sky brianna you can see in fact you can see almost all of the sky if you're just <laughs> If you're just standing up high and you've got you've got good posture, you can see almost all of the sky. That came directly from Hank. And now we've got another question. It comes from Amber who asks, Dear Hank and John, while the 2016 Project for Awesome was going on, I bought a mystery package and got an Imperial Affliction, which I was super excited about. So I just started reading it and I have noticed that the entire book, except for the very last page, is the same few paragraphs, but in a different order. Am I just... Uh, I'm... I'm just wondering if this is a mistake. I love my copy, and if it's a mistake, that's totally cool. But I was just curious what actually happens in the story. So if it is a mistake, could you please tell me? Thank you very much, Amber. Okay, Amber. Um, I remember when I got interviewed by NPR about this, um, like right when the book came out, the NPR guy was like, uh, have you talked to Peter Van Houten about what you said about him in the book. (laughs) And it was just before we went on air, thankfully. And I was like, okay, well, no, because Peter Van Houten is someone I made up and and an Imperial Affliction is a book that does not exist. Um, I really like books inside of books because they can be better than real books. I mean, the great thing about a... um, a book that doesn't exist is that it can be infinitely good, whereas books that do exist have all of the problems and insufficiencies of having been created by actual humans. So when I wanted to write about, like, you know, that one book that you love, or in my case, there were a couple of books that I loved in high school, I decided to make the book up. And then when they were going to make a movie of it, they called me one day, the producer people called me, and they said, we need to make an Imperial Affliction. And we're using, uh, we're working with this amazing graphics team who did work on the on Harry Potter stuff. And they've made a great cover. Here's the cover. And I thought the cover was amazing. And then they were like, but we need words inside the book uh, that Hazel can highlight. So we need you to include like these quotes from and in the Fault in Our Stars version of an Imperial Affliction, but also write at least like four or five pages that seem legible. Uh, so that's what <laughs> I did. I wrote like five pages and then they just like mixed and matched those five pages over and over and over again in the prop version of the book. And then uh, Fox printed up a bunch of the, the prop versions of the book for uh, Project Frost and Perks. So only about... Um, I guess a thousand of them or so uh, exist in the whole world, and I'm glad that you have one, and I'm sorry that it is not a real novel, but it is definitely not. What what you have read is is all that I will ever write of an imperial affliction. And now, now you know. So I have two questions, John. First, the last page is different? This is a thing I did not know. I feel like the last page is an author bio or something. Oh, I didn't okay. write the last page, though. Okay. Second question, what's your favorite book inside a book? 
Oh, that's a great question. Um, my favorite artwork inside of a book is uh, the Infinite Jest in an in Infinite Jest. Um, gosh, I don't know. What's your favorite book inside of a book? I don't. I was thinking. My first thought was S. Morgan Stern's The Princess Bride inside of The Princess Bride, but that's not actually right. how it works. I've actually I've actually broken it to people that S. Morgan Stern isn't real. Um, yeah, a, a bunch. A, yeah, it's very believable when you. I mean, The Princess Bride is such a great movie, but it is such a better book. It is so wonderful. It is such a yeah. wonderful reading experience. But um, it is very. It is a very believable um, sort of uh, feeling. Uh, the abridgment. Um, but you know those good old Kilgore Trout books uh, have right. always, I always, always loved Kilgore Trout. Place in my I heart. mean, yeah, yeah. I was always a big Kilgore Trout fan when I was a high school student. I loved the idea of there being these pop science fiction books that I couldn't read because they didn't exist. Um, mm -hmm. But I was reading almost in a way like Vonnegut's fan fiction about Kilgore Trout. <laughs> I just like. I love that meta stuff. I know that I shouldn't, and I know that it's like a bad habit that I need to break, but um, I can't help but love it. And I, I do think that there's something about it that's, that, that continues to speak effectively to our time. Mm -hmm. uh, there's another question that we have here, Hank. It comes from Ryle Fredo, who writes, <laughs> this is an actual email that we received. I'm going to read it in its entirety. <laughs> okay. Good morning. I'd like to pre-order a copy of John Green's new novel, Turtles All the Way Down. I'm specifically interested in the signed edition, ISBN 978-0-525-55538-4. My name is Ryan Ryanson, and the best email to reach me is Ryan's Ryan's Ryan at Rymail. And the best contact number for me is, I, I think this is the real phone number. Please let me know if you need any more information. <laughs> best wishes, Ralph Fredo. So just a quick response to that. That is the correct ISBN for the signed edition of Turtles All the Way Down. You can find out more at probablysignedturtles.com. And the book comes out in only 45 days, Hank. Wow. Wow. That is, that, that is, that is very exciting. I am so glad that we don't live in a world where you order books by sending an email to someone. Hello, I would like a book. <laughs> I would, here's the ISBN number. Please send it to me. Here's my address. Or you can call me. That would be great. Well, I, I think the best way to order a signed copy of Turtles All the Way Down is, in fact, to call your local bookstore. But yeah, um, it, th there is something magical about online ordering. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Hank, yeah. in addition, we should say that in addition to uh, our my new book being available uh, in, in print and online, also, uh, we, you and I are going to go, we're going on tour. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about what I'm going to do while... Uh, while you have given me stage time and it's like, okay, John Green's book announcement. He's probably going to read from the book and he's probably going to talk about the book and there's questions about the book and Hank's here. What's he going to do? And I'm just going to be weird, John. I get, I get to make whatever, I get to do whatever I want. I mean, I don't get to do whatever I want, but you I pretty much, no. I pretty much do though. Cause what I want is stuff you want me to do and stuff people want to see. I believe that deep in my heart. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't want you to do whatever you want to do and people don't want to see whatever you want to do. They want to see you uh, make something for them, not something for yourself. But that's what yourself. I want to do. Okay, then it's going to be awesome. <laughs> I, am, I am super excited. Hank and I haven't been on tour together since 2012. I had a great time on that tour. I am really, really excited. I wish we could announce where we're going, but we can't yet. Yeah. Um, but I, I just think it's going to be, for me, magical to be able to spend time, like all, all that like quality time with my brother. And it is such a 
pleasure to see Hank perform, and it'll be fun and a little bit scary to talk about the book. We're going to do live uh, versions of Dear Hank and John in every city that we visit, which is going to be super fun. We're going to answer your questions and provide you dubious advice and give you all that day's news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. <laughs> I guess. Probably not. I mean, it will be an abridged version of Dear Hank and John, I think. Sure, yeah. I mean, uh, which, to be fair, is all anyone ever wants. I mean, my God. <laughs> Who has ever listened to this podcast and thought, is there any way it could be longer? No, they actually, I've heard that feedback, John. I've heard that feedback. I have not. Mostly I've heard, can you guys say um less? Hey, we edit out like 90% of the ums. You're getting the best of the ums. It's You're getting true. our top uh, quality ums. The, there, there are, uh, uh, now, I'm, oh, now I'm stuck. All right, let's move on. This question comes from Joel, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I started smoking at 13. That was mm. dumb. But I quit smoking at 15. Well, I mean, first off, Joel, congratulations, because I also started smoking at 13, and I quit smoking <laughs> at, like, 27, and only after six years of chewing Nicorette. Anyway, oh, I quit smoking at 15, or so I thought. Oh, wait, I, got, I congratulated him too early. <laughs> at every party, I find myself outside with a cigarette in my hand. I think it's maybe because I like to take a break from the party itself. You know, get to step out into the cold Swedish spring or summer or fall or winter. <laughs> <laughs> Joel has a good sense of humor about the miseries of living in Sweden But you know what's nice about living in Sweden, Joel? Literally everything but the weather I like to have a little time for myself Even though I'm at a party with a bunch of people It's also a great way to get some time with a, one friend But still, I want to quit smoking I'm 20, it's starting to feel juvenile Do you have any dubious advice on how to get some alone time at a party without a cigarette? In vino veritas, Joel I just go to the bathroom <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I can lock myself into the bathroom of any party for at least 20 minutes and just be like, oh, God, I'm in my happy place. <laughs> I really do do that. Me um, too. Yeah. It, it, sometimes even at my own house, like yes. when I've got people over and there's Especially just a, bun- there's a bunch of people, house. I'm just like, I'm going to go to the upstairs toilet. Yeah. Uh, where it's all mine. And then like, like 10 minutes later, Catherine will text me and she's like, you OK up there? And I'll be like, just fine, baby. Just having do it the, all having right. the time of my life. There's some jokes on Twitter. You want to hear about them? Yeah, exactly. You won't <laughs> believe. You won't believe what Donald Trump did in the last 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> I just saw a really great cat video. It's uh, uh, no, Joel. You, you, I mean, yeah, you got to quit smoking. I, so for for years, I would go outside with my Nicorette and I would chew a piece of Nicorette while chatting with someone and just enjoying the smell of their smoke. Just mm. like just soaking in that secondhand smoke. I still love secondhand smoke. Like former smokers who are like, oh, secondhand smoke is the worst. I just don't understand because to me, like, I am so grateful whenever <laughs> someone is doing that horrible work for me. Oh, no, gross. It's, that's, I know it's dark, but I, it was very hard for me to quit smoking, Hank, as you know. Joel, here's what I'll say. It gets harder every day. I think that it will be harder to quit smoking tomorrow than it is today, etc. for the rest of your life. You're right that it's starting to feel juvenile. Now's the time. Now is the time. Just go ahead, buy a pack of Swedish Nicorette. I bet they have <laughs> minty flavors. Uh, or better yet, just quit so you don't get addicted to Nicorette for six years like I did. <laughs> And then when you want some alone time at a party, head to the bathroom. And then yeah. other people will start knocking and you'll be like, I'm sorry, I'm not actually going to the bathroom, but I do need to take my time in here. It <laughs> takes me seven minutes to smoke a cigarette and I'm going to spend seven minutes in here. Yeah. Um, or just go outside and like look at the sky and be like, oh, this is nice. Look at that. 
Look at this place. Look at this Sweden here. Look at all this great Sweden around. Just go outside and like smell the smell of like, uh, you know, democracy, but still a social safety net. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also a king. Do they have a king? I think they have a king. King Sweden. I googled. <laughs> that would be great if that was his name. <laughs> his name is his name is Carl the Fourteenth Gustav of Sweden. I, I don't gotta know why say, f- I think we're all surprised that there's only been sixteen Carls. <laughs> but I, I, how is he Carl the Sixteenth Gustav of Sweden? What does that mean? I think Gustav is probably his last name. Maybe maybe King I don't is think Carl he's the 16th in Swedish. Carl Gustav. I think his name is Carl Gustav. But he's Nobody Carl. knows for sure. <gasps> Did you know, Hank, that what? Carl Gustav the King's sixteenth uh, the king's father died in nineteen forty seven in an airplane crash when Carl Gustav was just nine months old? <gasps> Oh, what? There could have been a war of succession. Also, did you know that his grandfather, who, by the way, was named Gustav VI Adolf. I don't have, I have no idea how these people are named at this point. What is this weird Swedish naming convention? Yeah. The Crown Princess Victoria is just named the Crown Princess Victoria. There's nothing weird in her name. Oh, but the weird, okay, also, uh, Gustav VI uh, Adolf became king after Gustav V with a V, not with an F. Yes. I'll tell you what, they're <sighs> done, they're, they seem to have a huge name shortage in Sweden. Um, they've got so much going right, but it seems like if you don't have really free and open markets with lots of competition, you end up with a, a huge first name shortage. Uh, Hank, d- while we're talking about Sweden... Mm, what are you going to say now? You, uh, do we, would you believe me if I told you that Sweden has the third most medals ever in one summer olympic sport and only is it, one is it olympic it's diving it's olympic diving isn't that a surprise i don't know but i said it first god oh, dang it <laughs> first off i think they saw it coming so i think you still might have been the loser i think i might have actually i think i might have brilliantly forced your hand by yeah. making uh-huh. you say olympic diving before me even though it was obvious where i was headed <laughs> But that um, is correct. Sweden has had 21 Olympic medals in Olympic diving behind only China and the United States. Oh, and I thought you made that of fact Russia up. With 18. Wow. I thought you made that fact up just to wedge it in there. No, that's very Heck, that's no, a good. No, Hank, fact. I do no. This is this is your number one source for legitimate <laughs> Olympic diving news. Um well, John, thank you very much for for the update, but I'm pleased to say that I I won. And maybe we should have a poll on Twitter to let people know ask people whether they thought that I was about to to drop the word of the day or not. Uh, Speaking of which, before we get out of the word of the day, can I just tell you that Olympic diving uh, was originally known in the Summer Olympics. Uh, Do you know the original name of the sport? Oh, no. I would have thought that it would be called diving. It was called fancy diving. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, it had fanciness in it. It wasn't just like, oh, you're not just diving into a pool. You're doing somersaults and (laughs) other fancy things. You're going to do fancies. this was back in the days when there was a very, like, kind of low threshold for the definition of fancy, uh, like 1904, 1908. Just the slightest flourish, and people would be like, well, somebody thinks they're special. <laughs> Why didn't you just wear a hat then? <laughs> 
This next question. Oh, man. I wonder if you could have won, like, the 1908 Summer Olympic diving with just, like, an amazing cannonball. If, like, <laughs> like no, was, gotta, was yeah. diving the sport at a point yet where you could blow people away with just, like, check out this full twist? Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's the uh, watching the evolution of, of gymnastics makes me think that like all Olympic sports in 1908 was basically something that anyone could, today could do. Right. <laughs> like we've all dr- drank enough milk and everything yeah, that anybody yeah. could win the 100 meter dash in 1908. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're just we're all superhumans. We've had all the bovine growth hormone pumped into us. Uh, the, the winning time was probably like 12 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have food back then. <laughs> they were so hungry. The air, was, time. the air was made of coal. You had a 45% chance of breaking your hip if you ran 100 meters. <laughs> uh, yes, it's great to be alive today. This next question comes from Addy, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I just picked up Chinese takeout in my small town, and when I signed my receipt, there was a tip line. I didn't tip because I was only picking up the food. Uh, I would have tipped if I was going to sit down to eat. Am I supposed to tip when I'm getting takeout from a sit-down restaurant? Wontons and egg rolls, Addy. Yeah. I yeah. mean, this is a hard one. This is a hard one. And another another problem that Sweden has solved, by the way, <laughs> by just not having a real tip takeout culture. I always tip. But to be fair, the place that we do takeout from, uh, all of the people who work there know who I am and talk about me on Twitter and Facebook. So, so you got to be nice. Uh, I feel like I th- they've got me in a corner. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that I've always thought that uh, like a 10% takeout tip is the thing to do. That's sort of what I do. It's sort of like half of what I would give if I was going to sit down. Uh, you only give 20% tips at a sit-down restaurant? I mean, that's, that's, that's the rule, right? That's the thing. Now you're making me think that I'm a bad person. I give a 500% tip no matter what. <laughs> but it's not your fault that I'm, I'm better than you. Okay. No matter what, if they serve, if they, if I ask for a fish and they serve me a, like just a, a saucer, like just a plate with with like cold coffee on it, five hundred percent tip. Thank you so much. I appreciate. I appreciate this. Uh, no, I mean, I think having worked as a server made me a much better tipper. Uh, I have never had a job that made me less money in the long run uh, than waiting tables because it has made me a much better tipper. Although I don't tip five hundred percent. But yeah, Hank and I are believers in the ten percent uh, takeout tip. But I don't think that's universal, and I don't think there's an expectation of a tip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. But this question, but no, but sorry. also you should not turn to Hank and I for etiquette advice. My God, I mean, have you ever seen Hank eat spaghetti? <laughs> I love spaghetti so much. It it's gets like watching. It's like watching Cthulhu destroy the world. You know the best way to eat spaghetti, John? I, I was very pleased with that joke. I don't know why you didn't like it. Is <laughs> <laughs> to put it on like a hoagie roll. Oh, that's disgusting. And why, then, would you ca- then why would you carb up your carbs? Yeah, you got to carb up those carbs, John. That's where all no, the nutrition, you don't need to, that's where all the nutrition comes from. carbs in either a hoagie roll or spaghetti without having to eat them together. All right. Speaking of you being weird, John, here's another question. It comes from Dean who asks, Dear Hank and John. So, John has shilled for hot tub baths several times over the life of the podcast. As a listener who lives in a place where bathtubs are rare and therefore hasn't had any real experience with them, I have to ask, how does one take a bath? 
I know that one fills the tub with water and puts a bath bomb in, but then what? (laughs) (laughs) Is one supposed to exfoliate? Uh, When is one actually done with a hot tub bath? The few times I've had the chance to take one, I never feel much cleaner than I did before I got in, and I always felt the urge to wash down with a quick shower afterward. I look forward to being enlightened by John, the tub evangelist. Thanks. In love, there's always one who kisses and one who offers the cheek. Oh my, Dean. That's good. That reminds me of a great line by Edgar Caret, whose name I'm sure I'm pronouncing. Um, have you ever read any of his stories, Hank? No. One of his stories ends, uh, there are two kinds of people in the world, uh, the people who sleep next to the wall and the people who sleep next to the people who kick them out of bed. <laughs> oh my goodness. Not, not, no. Oh my. We don't have a wall on either side of our bed. So, <laughs> well, the... I guess you're both sleeping next to the people who kick you that's out of right. bed. That's right. Uh, so let me break it down for you, Dean. Um, first off, I don't want to offend my dear sponsor Lush or anything, but you don't need to use a bath bomb to take an excellent bath. The key to an excellent bath is one, lighting, and two, the exact right temperature in the bath itself. You also need like an appropriately sized bathtub so that you don't feel like a tiny child taking a bath inside of a, 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 a tiny little bathtub. Um, you, you need a bath tub that is designed for a person of your size, which is surprisingly hard to find, almost as if people don't believe in baths anymore, even though for the record, they predate showers. And if it was good enough for my ancient ancestors, it's good enough for me. That's my policy on all things except antibiotics. Okay, so the key is the right temperature, the right lighting, and then you just get in the bath and you slowly soap up and you rinse and you just (laughs) let yourself calm down. And here's my argument, Dean. If you don't have time for a bath, if your life is so rushed that you have to take a shower where basically you're being shot by pellets of water over and over and over again, if you don't have time to just soak up the wonder of warm water then why are you alive? What is the point? The whole point of being alive is to take baths. I mean, there are lots of people who don't have baths, though, John. Well, I, then they, I guess you have to construct a different meaning for life. But to me, the meaning of life is <laughs> bathing. Oh, man. That's kind of how I feel about sleep these days. I used to go to uh, the Turkish baths um, in Chicago, where, I, where I, there was a nice Turkish bath. Uh, house right next to my old apartment in Chicago. And that was great, too, because it was like the fun of baths, but with random other people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, we have sort of a similar thing in Montana because we have a lot of hot springs. So you just like sort of walk out into the woods and then and then you'll suddenly find a bunch of hot pools with strangers in them in various states of undress and you're like hey hey what's going on man let's i'm gonna get in your tub with you it's a nice reminder of how close heaven uh is to hell (laughs) you don't like the sound of that or you do i i i don't like the sound of that i mean it depends it it depends on the vibe you know, mm-hmm. like anything. It depends on if I feel safe and happy and I like the vibe, like anything on in life. One time I was at a hot spring and I was in the the, the, the tub, the pool. It was a, This was not a developed hot spring. It's just like people have put rocks around the actual spring where the hot water is coming out. So it's 
amazing and weird in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I was th- there's some other people in the tub with us uh, in the pool. And then a moose appeared. And it was super idyllic. And there were these people. And everyone was wearing clothes. So it wasn't awkward in the way that that sometimes makes me feel awkward. Um, though you do it your way, no big deal. Um, and... Uh, So we're like watching this moose and he's like eating this grass that's been, you know, like lush and like watered by the hot springs. And the the guy who's in the tub with me, he says, moose, hooves like razors. And that was, and that was suddenly I had a very different feeling about the entire situation. So Catherine and I often will say hooves like razors whenever we see uh, a wild (laughs) animal that we don't, that we don't want to get too close to. (laughs) Oh, man. You know what that makes me think of, Hank? Mm. It makes me think that during the 1904 uh, Olympics, uh, you were not allowed to do a double somersault because it was considered dangerous. (laughs) Too fancy. No, it's too fancy. You just have to do one somersault. If one somersault was good enough uh, for our ancestors, it's good enough for the people of 1904, they said. (laughs) This podcast... It's brought to you by Fancy Diving. It's fancy, but not too fancy. No, not, never. You don't want to go over the top with your fanciness when it comes to diving. Uh-huh. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Bonnie Tyler. Bonnie Tyler performing Total Eclipse of the Heart for the last time until 2027. Uh, this podcast is additionally brought to you by Swedish Nicorette. Swedish Nicorette. Don't probably find another way to quit because then you'll just be addicted to Swedish Nicorette. This next question uh, asks, Dear Hank and John, My boyfriend and I had an argument about whether humans are radioactive. He says that everybody probably has one radioactive atom in them. I say that just because a cake has salt in it doesn't make it salty. Then we looked up the definition of salty, and it it said that it was anything that contains salt. Which is more important, definition or connotation? Is cake salty? Sienta et acetatum. Jenkin Hahn. Apparently that's the name of this person. Jenkin Hahn. Mm. It's a suspicious name. Uh, cake is not salty. Cake is not and salty. And the idea that anything that contains salt, anything that contains salt is not salty. That is not what salty means. That That no, is... Nor, in fact, is that actually what the dictionary says, the definition of salty is. I'm okay. looking at the definition of salty right now, and it says tasting of, containing, or preserved with salt. Now, well, I guess you could argue that anything containing salt is salty yeah. according to... But I think it's mostly tasting of or preserved with. That's what defines saltiness. I'm, I'm really interested in, uh, in, in the use graph over time of the word salty, which uh, got pretty peaked uh, around 1950 and then lulled off for a little bit and now has shot right back up. So I think it's because we used to have like, you know, people would be like, oh, well, he's a salty dog. Oh, and now yeah. maybe people are starting to say that again. You know, I'd like to be. In the sense be... of like coarse Sh- humor. Yeah. Should I? Do, am I a salty dog, John? No. Oh. Mm. No. Should I be? No. No, I, I, I quite like you just the way you are. Please don't change and start using a bunch of 1950s hip slang. It'll be so cringy. <laughs> oh, boy. This podcast is boffo. Oh, God. It's starting. I knew that it was going to happen. I knew uh, there was no way if you asked this question that you weren't going to start saying boffo. <laughs> and now John I know that you're like feverishly one. googling 1950s slang, trying to think of you one think other I term need that you could to use to Google make 1950s slang. So the thing that I wanted to say is that, uh, th- like, so, like I feel like there there are different 
there, there are things like salty, which is how you experience it, and then radioactive, which is, is just a property of a thing. So like containing salt means that there's salt in it, and radioactive means that there is some radioactive decay going on. So they're, like it is emitting particles, and we are radioactive. We have potassium, and potassium has you know a radioactive isotope, and, uh, and, and it's inside you, and you emit particles, and that's... Like that, that's the whole, that's the whole thing of, of degrees. Like you can have something that is very safe and, and radioactive and something that is very dangerous and also radioactive. And so you need more than just that one word to describe how dangerous something is. And I think that we often, not just in this word, but in lots of words, get caught up in the idea that if, uh, that if you are any amount of one thing, that you are that thing. And that is a failing of language. Oh, that's a great point. And uh, really an a surprisingly artful point from that question. Uh, <laughs> since you came close to talking about politics, Hank, can I ask one political question? Sure. This question comes from Samantha, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I've been a nerd fighter for six or seven years now, but I've recently become more politically conservative and have greater understanding of politics and my belief. And I'm struggling with hearing people in communities like my Tumblr friends and in my field of work and study, I work in graphic design, expressing views about evil Republicans. Um, in front of me and being afraid to explain my own thoughts on a topic because I would be an evil Republican in their eyes. This happens a lot around issues like welfare, where I'm against government welfare because I don't believe it's the best way to help struggling and impoverished Americans, not because I don't believe in helping people. How do I talk about my political views without being labeled evil and racist and homophobic and Islamophobic? Uh, because my views let me in with a lot of other people that do fit those terms. Is it worth speaking up at all? Anxieties and blueberries, Samantha. Mm. I don't know, John, you answered that question because you're the one that wanted to ask it. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing. I, I think that um, anytime people are talking to what they believe to be themselves or preaching to what they believe mm -hmm. to be the choir, they talk differently than when they're uh, talking to... Um, like trying to talk to a broader public. And I think that's I, I, I think that's like a failure of discourse right now, that we aren't doing a good job of doing much other than preaching to the choir and, and kind yeah, of and it's, it's, converting the converted. Yeah, and we like it. We like doing it. It's comfortable and it feels good. And it's like, you know, it, it's easy. It's the easy thing to do. And then if you, uh, you know, like the, there's that like concern that like, oh, is my opinion in this room making everyone have less of a good time? Because, well, because you but, can yeah, I mean, there's that. But I also think actually in Samantha's question is a little bit or one solution, at least to Samantha's problem, which is that uh, she writes, this happens around issues like welfare, I, because I don't believe it's the best way to help struggling and impoverished Americans. So let's have a conversation about about policy, Samantha, instead of about um, ideas like welfare. So when we talk about welfare, what are we talking about? Are we talking about unemployment insurance? Are we talking about, you know, the, which is uh, something that people pay into while they have work. And then if you lose your job, you receive unemployment benefits for a certain amount of time as long as you're still looking for work. Does that constitute welfare or is that separate from your definition of welfare? What about uh, Social Security disability uh, benefits, which go to uh, people with disabilities who are unable to work because of, they have a physical or intellectual disability that prevents them uh, from being able to work. Is that welfare? And if so, um, you know, it's not really a matter of incentivizing people to work in that case because uh, most of those people can't participate in the workforce. 
Um, what about uh, low the low income uh, heating provision uh, that's part of the federal government's benefits, where uh, people who uh, live in apartments or, or houses who can't afford their heating bills in the winter get assistance from the federal government. If we talk specifically about programs that are part of the current federal government and what we would like to see instead or what we think the world should look like instead of the way that it looks like now, instead of vague kind of ideologically driven ideas like the word welfare, I think we get a lot closer to being able to have a real conversation rather than just kind of staking out ideological ground and then sort of throwing rocks at each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like John, perfectly honest, like I, I, until you said all those things, didn't like, couldn't have even articulated a welfare program, like a single one. Well, we actually don't have, uh, yeah, we don't have a ton of welfare programs in the United States. I mean, we spend a lot of money on social security, uh, but most of it is is for people who are retired and have paid into the social security system for mm-hmm. most of their working lives. And then we spend a ton of money on um, providing health care to people through Medicare, which is for elderly people, and Medicaid, which is for uh, certain people who live in poverty, not everyone who lives in poverty, but certain people who live at or near the poverty line uh, can get health care through Medicaid, especially kids. And both all of that, which are the central sort of like welfare or redistribution payments in the U.S. right now, are really popular with both Republicans and Democrats. And so I I actually think if we talked in specifics instead of in kind of ideologically charged language, we would find a lot more overlap. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. This next question comes from Seamus, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I learned that in the upcoming reboot of DuckTales, saying Huey, Dewey, and Louie also now refers to their birth order. How do you determine the birth order of an animal that hatches from an egg? Is it which egg comes out first or which egg hatches first? Also, can you have identical twin birds? We might not solve a mystery or rewrite history, Seamus. I've watched the first episode of the new DuckTales, Hank. Yeah. It made me extremely nostalgic for the old DuckTales. Why would you change something that's already perfect? Why do we need older and younger mm-hmm. brothers when we already had the perfect television program? Well, was were, were Huey, Dewey, and Louie, did they used to be triplets or something? It was never considered because it doesn't matter. We don't need sibling rivalry in the DuckTales universe. It's just not necessary. Oh, is there sibling rivalry? I haven't watched yet. I'm very excited to see it. It's a star-studded cast, but I have not watched it. It's very good. It's very good. I just, there's a few things that annoyed me because all I want, of course, is for it to be like the old DuckTales. I am a a simple person. I want (laughs) fancy diving to contain no more than one somersault, (laughs) baths for everyone forever, no matter what, and the regular old ducktails. I don't even want baths. Um, so, so, so as for as for birth order, I don't know. I think probably it's which egg hatches first. But also, like there could be two eggs hatching simultaneously. So, it, like, is it when the little egg tooth first pops out, or is it when the chick first gets like like out of the egg completely? I don't know. That seems complicated to me. But I do have an answer to: Can you have identical twin birds? Because John. Do you know how this happens? I have, I mean, absolutely not. So uh, when you have a bird um, and you have two 
like if you have identical so like in a, in a person you have identical twins they're both hanging out there in the in the the uterus together in a bird yeah. they hang out in the egg together oh wow so when you have wow. identical or fraternal twins there are two birds that grow inside the same egg and so the vast majority of times those birds do not live because that's a too cramped a space to be a bird but it does happen uh there was a study they so they looked at 200 eggs that contained two embryos whether that was a double yolk egg which would be fraternal twins or whether the yolk split early on uh and that would be identical twins uh, and found that only one of the eggs produced uh two happy healthy babies so it does happen mm. but it does not happen very often because it's mm. it's it's biologically constrained in there hmm so you can have yeah. identical twin birds, and I was very surprised and interested to find that out. Thank you for asking the question, Seamus, because I did not know. I am also surprised. It was weird how you put on your best Agatha Christie voice at the end of that, <laughs> that, that little bit there, but I liked it. Okay. That's my new thing, John, when I'm discovering new facts about the universe. Oh, boy, man. Okay. I mean, I've, I'm very close to mentioning something from your past that I've never mentioned and that no, I, don't I know do you don't it. want me to mention. Don't I'm do very it. close. I'm Definitely very close. Definitely don't do that, John. I'm like Icarus flying toward the sun. And I want to just, I want to say it, but I'm not going to out of respect for you. Thank, thank you, John, for, for leaving off. No one is, no one should ever know. No one should really, ever know. I, it's the rare thing that uh, is just, it's too much. This question comes from Emma, who writes, Dear John and Hank, this weekend I'm going on a date with a lovely girl and I can't contain my excitement. Ooh. However, this upcoming date has made me wonder, at what point can I say that we are officially dating? Well, not before your first date, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously now would be far too soon. I wouldn't say far too soon, but when can I appropriately tell people that I am dating someone? Three dates? Ten dates? Is it after a certain amount of time, like a month? Please answer swiftly, as oh, I am in desperate need to reveal goodness. our probable love to the world. Ooh, oh, wow, good oh, Lord. Wow, wow, wow. Is this a rebound? Oh, you are excited. <laughs> Amantes sunt Amantes, Emma. I assume that means I am really in love with this person that I'm going out on a date with for the first time in a couple in a couple weeks. Yes, that's, that's the Latin for clingy, clingy, clingy. Clink, clink. I don't know. I don't know exactly what uh, that means, Hank, but I assume it means I am really excited about love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, John. Yeah. Uh, I I haven't dated anyone in uh, so many years. Why do we ever I, I take have on an these questions? For this. Okay. I think that you can say that you're dating when it's obvious to you that you are dating. Hmm. I, like, Is you that, can have a conversation that, yeah. if you want. There's a few strategies here. You can have the conversation, but I would not recommend the first date no. for that conversation. I would recommend like after the third date for that conversation at the earliest yeah, assuming I've, weekly dates. I think like, um, I think that, that if there is an assumption that you're going to go out on another date and you don't really have to ask, then you're dead. Right. Yes. It's when it becomes, of course, there's no more asking. It's just like, what are we doing this weekend? Yeah. That's dating. <laughs> I think. But like Hank, it has been some time since I have... Uh, dipped my toes into those waters and i must say i am not nostalgic for them no 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 it means lovers are crazy by the way oh uh, well yeah 
All right. It's cute. It's cute. Good luck, Emma. We wish you well. And since you asked that question six months ago, probably you're now married. <laughs> I hope I hope everything has gone well. Uh, John, let's do one last question before we get to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. This one comes from Haley, who asks, Dear Hank and John, longtime listener, first time potter. Uh, that's not what it says, but whatever. I have a question about neighborhood etiquette. If my dog poops during a long walk and I secure it in a plastic bag, am I allowed to throw it away in somebody else's garbage on the side of the road? Because I hate being rude, but I also hate carrying poop. Feces and fiestas Haley. I mean, this is why I don't walk my dog, just so I'm not presented with these kind of difficult problems. I do. I do that. I did. I did that. I would always pick up the lemon poop, but I would occasionally drop it in somebody else's trash. I just feel, yeah, I'm not going to swing this bag of poop all the way home if I'm like I know, but then blocks. you're potentially saying to somebody like, you clean the poop out of your garbage bag well, when this Ziploc I mean, leaks. The- theoretically, it's the garbage men who clean the poop out of the bag. They do the thing, and they're going to do it know. at my house, and they're going to do it at their house. As long as, I like... I don't know. I... It seems very marginal to me. This is why I, I live on on several acres of land and Willie is allowed to roam free. Yeah, I do have this, this feel like I don't like if there's a person standing on the porch, I'm not going to do it. So like I know that there's something wrong with it. Exactly. Yeah. Bingo, 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 bingo. Hank, before we get to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, I need to read one correction, which All came right. uh, to John uh, mostly, but mm-hmm. also Hank. Sure. Trisha writes, uh, I'd like to write with a correction. On the 102nd episode of the pod, John reported that only one Model 3 was delivered in July of this year. This is a Tesla thing. My husband works for Tesla, and every time I see a Tesla, I inform whoever is nearest, hey, my husband made that with his bare hands. (laughs) (laughs) It drives him crazy, but I'm very proud of him and the work he does. It will also drive him crazy that I took the time to write this correction, but he's not the boss of me. 30 (laughs) Model 3s were delivered in July of 27, and full production on the cars is well underway as I write this. Now, it was still several years past the Elon timeline, of course, but you can't imagine what kind of overtime and struggle the workers endured to get not just one, but 30 Model 3 cars out. Um, That's okay. I I think a 29 car difference is significant enough to write in, and I hope you'll give them a shout out. Trisha. Trisha, thank you to your husband for making uh, such high quality electric vehicles, and I'm sorry. (laughs) Good job, John. What's the news from AFC Wimbledon? Hank, uh, have you ever witnessed a complete solar eclipse? No. Have you ever witnessed a near complete solar eclipse? Yes. So what you will no doubt remember is that a darkness fell over the land and it became cold and barren. Mm, Not really. The birds stopped singing in midair and fell to the ground. The goats fainted. The gods (laughs) themselves knelt down and begged reprieve. A man who was in the middle of his double fancy somersault dive just stopped. And he just (laughs) stopped in midair. Stopped in mid somersault. As the cold descended, um, yeah. and and darkness washed across the land, and the crops died, and etc. Um, anyway, Uh-oh. that w- that was better and more fun than AFC Wimbledon's League One season so far. <laughs> oh, Hank, it's very very worrisome. It's a very worrisome situation. So you still got that just that one goal under your belt. We still have just scored the one goal this season uh, on the heels of not scoring a goal in the last, like, six games of last season. Right, I remember that. Um, 
and we've 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 had the one one draw against Scunthorpe, then we lost one nil to Shrewsbury, and now we've lost two nil to Fleetwood. Um, uh, I mean, I want to like find a, a silver lining in this this goal scoring drought and this uh, plummeting down the table. The good news is that while while AFC Wimbledon are in the relegation spots right now, um, they are only two points away from being in like 15th place because right. it's very early in the season. Right, yeah. So things have to get worked out. Things have to get figured out. I'm definitely nervous, um, but I also, it's a long season and it, it was never going to be easy. The second season in a, in a new league is always harder than the first season. So that's all I got, but Jababa, we did have a new signing. We signed somebody from Rangers, um, which is a team in Scotland. Good. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's a winger and we need some offense. So that's good, I guess. His name's Harry Forrester. He um, is known as... Uh, in in Scotland, I don't want to speak ill of him on the world's second leading AFC Wimbledon podcast, uh, but in Scotland, he was known as something of a troublemaker. But to be fair, Neil Ardley has turned around people with bad reputations in the past. So hopefully Harry Forrester is going to score 462 goals over the next 38 weeks and AFC Wimbledon will rise right to the championship. Time will tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, good luck, and I'm glad to hear that you've at least you're at least moving on players and not just sort of sticking with the current squad. Yeah, no, it's uh, well, we'll see. Life is long, and we'll see. We'll see. Uh, John, so question: Who owns Mars? Oh, I know the answer to that. America. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, more broadly than that, there's a conversation going on around who owns stuff that is mined in outer space because people are looking at the future of mining stuff in outer space. And mostly this would be useful for use in outer space. So it's uh, the first thought is like, hey, if we found a bunch of gold in space, we could bring it back to Earth and then there would be gold and you could sell it on Earth. But really what we like, it's expensive to move stuff around in space to get it from space to earth to get earth stuff to space so what we're mostly looking at is taking stuff that's in space and building things with it or using it as fuel to move stuff that's already in space around so you don't have to launch all your water up into space uh, you don't have to watch launch all your hydrogen your oxygen up into space you can go to space mine the water and then use it um now the, there uh are starting to be enough people looking to do this, that uh, governments want to avoid conflicts between companies and countries over uh, resources out in space and uh, are starting to have some rules. And the U.S. is looking at a rule uh, that says if you uh, can grab it and take it with you, then it becomes your property. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, to be fair... Uh, so you that don't... is sort of the approach that the U.S. has taken to um, <laughs> land management over the last couple centuries. So yeah. seems reasonable. It's yeah. not a huge change in policy. So if you obtain the resource and bring it with you, it becomes your property. Um, so it's not your property while it's on the ground. But as soon as you pick it up and bring it with you, it becomes yours. So it's like, oh, this is man. mine now. If you put it back down, it's not yours anymore. But if you pick it back up, it's yours. If you put it down, it's not yours. Which is, I guess, the rule that we have for most rocks. Like, uh, a rock uh, isn't yeah. mine unless I'm holding on to it, and I put it back down, it's not my rock anymore. Yeah, that's not strictly speaking. It's a little bit of an oversimplification <laughs> of uh, U.S. land management, but only a little bit. 
I mean, I feel like if I go to a river and I pick up a rock, that's my rock now. If I take it back to my house, put it in my house, and you steal that rock, you stole my rock. But if I put it back down on the, on the riverbank, that's not my rock. Right? I don't know, man. This is how I, rock ownership works. Uh, but I could, but I couldn't like take a bulldozer and like scoop up a thousand rocks and bring those with me. People would be like, "You can't just take those rocks." But if I take one rock, I feel like it's okay. But it's probably not. It's probably illegal. I probably shouldn't take those rocks, but I'm going to anyway. No. Yeah. Yeah. Just from just from all not a lot of them, just a, just a few from from areas where people don't usually take rocks. So it's just me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do you want to? I feel ju- like this is complicated interstellar <laughs> law that we're not really ready for yet, and we're gonna have to do it the same way we did it the last time, which was oh, just horrifically. Hopefully, <laughs> well, the good news is no, there's not as people to steal from out there, except for each other. Right, but don't worry, we will find a way to do it uh, inequitably. I know it. I believe in us a hundred percent. Human beings. We amaze me. I, I, I continue. <laughs> I continue to be astonished by all of the things that humans need to make laws for because of all the weird new stuff we keep doing. It's sort of inspirational, but also sort of horrifying, like uh, the internet and most other things. Uh, uh, well, I should say that there is also some some uh, outer space law confusion, and so other people are not quite so sure that it is as simple as uh, I just said, but. Um, Rules in space. Good luck enforcing them. There's no space cops. Um, yep, that's all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there you go. There's no space cops. It's going to be hard in space without space cops, man. Is there a great space cop science fiction novel, Hank? Because I love detective fiction and oh, I love like hard-boiled oh. cops, but I don't know of any space cops. Oh my God, cops. John. Yes, yes, yes. Leviathan Wakes. Leviathan Wakes by James S.A. Corey. Uh, the Expanse series, there's like seven of them, uh, but Leviathan Wakes is, is uh, the one that is from the pr- the perspective of like literally a noir detective who lives in the asteroid Ooh, that belt. that sounds good. It's so good. It was okay, good. well now I'm excited. I'm fired up. I'm going to check it out. Um, Hank, uh, do you remember when my This Machine Kills Fascist sticker that is on my laptop and is on in all the Crash Course videos when mm-hmm. it was not a politically charged statement? Yeah, I do remember that. Oh, God. Okay. With that noted, thanks to everybody for listening. Um, <laughs> uh, you can send us questions at hankandjohn at gmail.com or find us on Twitter. I'm John Green. Hank is Hank Green. And uh, we really appreciate you listening. And let us know if you like this stupid new bit with the phrase of the week. I liked it. I liked it. I think you did. I think you came up with a good thing, John. I want to do better next week. I'm already looking forward to it. This podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins. It is produced by Rosiana Hals-Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our social media manager is Victoria Bongiorno. The music is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't don't forget forget to be be awesome. awesome.